This is Bishop Michael Curry, and you're listening to The Way of Love. Welcome to the Way of Love podcast with Bishop Michael Curry, a podcast from the Episcopal Church about following Jesus and changing the world. I'm your host, Sandy Millian. In this episode, Bishop Curry talks to Richard Rohr, who is an author, spiritual writer, and Franciscan friar based in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We made Jesus into a, a problem solver, yes. not a primal revelation of the nature of love. They talk about what it takes to turn and follow a Christ who is as big as the universe, choosing the way of love instead of the way of our own ego and selfishness. They discuss the spirituality of addition versus the spirituality of subtraction and the consequences for our country and ourselves when we spend more time placing Jesus on a pedestal than we do actively following him as we live our daily lives. Father Richard, welcome and thank you for being with us for The Way of Love. Well, it's my privilege. What else do I have to do that could be as good as this? Thank you. Oh, you are kind. And we're all sort of homebound, to be sure. Uh, We're taping this during the pandemic while we're all being at least physically distanced from one another. What's this been like for you? Well, you know, I live in a quasi-hermitage way in back of a large Mexican-American parish Uh here in Albuquerque, Uh and I've lived here for 21 years. So in some ways, this has just been more a hermitage than usual. Mm -hmm. The center is around the corner, so believe me, on an ordinary day, I I mix with a lot of people. But this is a little place where I can lock down, to use the contemporary. Mm -hmm. So it's it's actually been very good, uh, despite the suffering. Uh, you know, it's given me a way to hold it, to, to try to be in solidarity with it. Uh, it it's been okay. You know, it, it's funny. It's, uh, somebody said I wasn't, it wasn't me, but somebody said um, of this time when we were all uh, physically uh, distancing that um, in, in many respects, we're all kind of monastics now. We just don't know it. Yeah, that's what I was trying to say, exactly. You know, I used to take intentional hermitages during Lent or Easter time, and now this looks like this is going to be a little longer. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But uh, yeah, it's sort of a a monkish vocation for a while. I'm wondering what wisdom is there from the monastic way, if you will, that really might help us um, in this particular time of both of physical distancing and of the uncertainty of, of what the next year and a half is probably going to be like? I think you have to find your deeper ground of self. Or, or you go crazy. You just keep needing diversions, entertainments, friends to re-mirror you or reaffirm you, Hmm. and I get uh, enough of that. But uh, when that isn't coming my way, I really have to find a deeper ground Mm -hmm. for who I am. Who am I now, Lord? Who am I now? And uh, there's nothing like this. At the back of this huge parish, there's a gigantic parking lot, which holds probably 
you know, 300 cars or so. Uh, I, it's just completely bare, of course, these days. So um, I really have a sense of solitude. Then behind my house, I have five huge, beautiful cottonwood trees. We're not far from the Rio Grande here. Uh-huh. And um, so I have the natural beauty and the open space beauty of a of an American parking lot <laughs> in front of me. <laughs> and my little dog here with me. Uh-huh. I say, what did I do to deserve all this? You know? Is that Opie? That's all oh, you even know his name. That's Opie. He's here looking adoringly up at me right now. Uh-huh. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I'm not going to ask you where he gets his name from. Well, you must have watched Andy Griffith show. Andy Griffith, yeah. I grew. Oh yeah, grew up on it. <laughs> yeah, perfect little boy who said yes, pa, no, pa. Right. And I, I got him at the shelter. Uh-huh. And I said I want him to say, as it were, yes, pa, no, pa. <laughs> and that's exactly what he does. He's he's so obedient. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> wow. Well, yeah, you know, it is funny because part of, I suspect, a lot of us are beginning to realize that when when you are kind of cloistered like this, yeah, uh, you, you can lose track of time um, and get confused. I mean, you can know day and night, but can get, I, I found myself even some days saying, wait a minute, what day of the week is this? Exactly. Is- I woke up this morning thinking it was Sunday. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> It is disorienting. It's being grounded in in the center, going deeper. So how do you do that? You know, uh, you've probably heard me say this. Forgive me if it's too endless and repetitive, but it's the original quote is actually from uh, Meister Eckhart, the German mystic. And he said the spiritual journey has much more to do with subtraction than it does with addition. Mm. Now, we living in the capitalist West, we pretty much turned the gospel, certainly we Roman Catholics did, into mm. addition. You mm. know, uh, go to this Mass, uh, say this rosary. It was always a doing which was supposed to make us please God or be enlightened. And it's really, uh, I think, a great freedom to have uh, a lot taken away from us, which uh, Meister Eckhart called a spirituality of subtraction uh-huh. instead of a spirituality of addition. Mm. So uh, it's, it's so much about letting go of what we think is essential. And, you know, if I were God, thank God I'm not, but if I were God... I, when I see the immense anger, hurt, confusion of not just America, but yeah. the whole world, it seems today. And I wanted to have a plan to uh, wake people up to essentials. I'm not saying you know that, that God caused this right. COVID-19. Right. But it has the potential to achieve a lot of God's purposes. Mm-hmm. what's essential and what is not essential at all. Now, yeah. we're fighting it, of course, because we like non-essentials, don't we? 
Yes, we do. I do too. I do too. Yeah. Yeah, their whole industry is built on non-essentials. That's right. That's right. Yeah. You know, it really is. It really is funny the definition of what's essential in a pandemic and what's not. It never occurred to me until you just said it. You know, in terms of we think in terms of medical personnel and you know firefighters, first responders, and yes. um, the, the folk in the grocery stores, farmers, the pharmacists, all those are essential. I mean, there's some things that you got to have in order to keep a society going. Um, but it never occurred to me to ask the question. So, what's essential in Michael Curry's life? Yes, and now we're forced to, aren't we? Yes. Yeah, and for me, it's a bit humiliating that. You know, mm-hmm. some of the things I think are essential, like a nice shot of vodka at night. They really right. are. Because <laughs> I've had no <laughs> attention. Nice, not all, essential. <laughs> no ten, attention all day. Uh, and I'm not saying that to even put guilt on myself, but just it's a winnowing experience, isn't it? Yeah. It really is. What did you, you know, I mean, you've come a long way. This has been a long journey from Kansas to Albuquerque. Yeah, it has. What have been some of the moments of that journey that have helped to make you, you? You know, at a certain point, I stopped trying to steer the ship because I recognized if I did get out of the way, the right person, the right idea, the right movement would always come into my life. And they just came sequentially uh, without me even realizing it uh, until after the fact, well, where did that come from? You know, let me take things like the Enneagram. You know, I learned that from my spiritual director in 1973 and no one had heard of it then. And my gosh, how that has allowed me, uh, it's not a major part of my life anymore at all in terms of teaching it, but how it has allowed me to help so many people and groups. I'd say the same with male spirituality. Uh-huh. Where I just saw the state of the male, which is mm-hmm. glowingly evident now in our leadership in this country. What, mm-hmm. what has allowed us to create so many immature men? Yes. Uh, and we started working on that in the early 90s, you know. When I lived in downtown Albuquerque, uh, the little uh, church next door, the alcoholics or the addicts, I should say, uh, met on several nights a week. And they gather in my yard afterwards, my little backyard and smoke cigarettes. And so I learned to trust and to understand the depth of the 12 step spirituality. Yes. You know, and so each one of these was another little moment that, wow, that's a piece of the pie. That's a piece of the pie. Uh, But I didn't bake the pie. I just allowed the the pieces to be put together, you know. And now I'm 77. Uh And um, I'm, I'm not expecting any more pieces. But I bet there will be maybe yeah. the whole the gift of death itself. Who knows? Mm. What's your favorite book? 
Favorite book. I mean, of course, the Bible. And I know that was you. Uh -huh. yeah. <laughs> but well, but after the Bible. <laughs> after the Bible. Well, I've got to choose one that isn't academic or, or even perfectly historical. Uh -huh. But because it exercised such a huge emphasis on my life when I was 14 years old, there was a book by a man called Felix Timmermans, The Perfect Joy of St. Francis. Uh -huh. And I read it when at 14, you're so ready to be looking for an ideal or something visionary. Now, this is 1957, you know, yeah. and we Catholics were of course, growing up on lives of the saints, but I usually found them dour and ascetical, but not necessarily human or joyful. Yeah. Uh -huh. I, I finally found a saint uh, that I wanted to be like. And mm. that very year, the Franciscans came to uh, our parish in Kansas, and in their lovely brown robes, they gave us a a week-long retreat, uh -huh. and they gave me an address in Ohio to write off to, and that has made all the difference. It's one of the best decisions I ever made. I really, I'm going to be a priest in uh, 50 years in about two weeks, uh -huh. but I, I must say I, I really take more joy, excitement, pride in being a Franciscan. Yeah. than I do a priest. I'm not trying to put down priesthood, but it's been more uh, in many, where, uh, many ways a role, whereas Franciscanism was a, a way of life, a spirituality. Yeah. And uh, that's what I really identify with. So thank God, because of this pandemic, I don't even have to celebrate my golden jubilee. I, I wasn't feeling up to it anyway, because it isn't really who I am. Tell us a little bit about the Franciscan way. What about it speaks and has spoken to you? You know, Michael, all the uh, contemporary issues, and uh -huh. we're quite convinced this is why Pope Francis took the name Francis. Yes. Were already chosen intentionally by this 13th century Italian who was yeah. a layman. He was not a priest. You know? not a priest right. Always surprises people. Yeah. Um, his love of the earth, his love of animals, his love of conscious peacemaking, his trips to, uh, you know, the, the, the Crusades across the Mediterranean, his teaching on nonviolence, I can see why the first centuries called him another Christ. Yeah. He really centered in on what you and I would call the Sermon on the Mount, the, yes. the big issues. Yes. And so many of our saints, I, I don't mean to offend anybody out there, but you're not sure that the things they were preoccupied with were the real issues. Yeah. Yes. They were often about personal piety personal purity, which is fine. Yeah. But I don't hear Jesus talking about that in the no. Sermon on the Mount. No. So Francis was a Sermon on the Mount saint. Yes. Yeah, and that, that's what we need, as you well know. Even, uh, who was it? Was it Lenin? <laughs> Even Lenin said, 
if there were more Christians like um, Francis, he might be one. Yeah, uh, you know, it's been quoted so many times. The way I heard it, Bishop, was uh, if we had, if I had ten more Francis of Assisi's, yes, I, I could have uh, uh, inaugurated a much better revolution. That's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Mm. Lenin. Mm-hmm. You, you, you touched on this just just a moment ago, but in in your um, in your book, uh, the the Universal Christ, that that's a did that get you in trouble? I have I haven't received a single hate letter on that book. Mm-hmm. I, I would like to believe there's people thinking I well they're probably I'm so far gone there's no point in working with me, but I'd <laughs> like to believe a lot of people Christian intuition says this has got to be true. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, when I read it, it was, I said, yes. I just kept finding myself saying, yes, yes, oh. yes. That that's the whole, I mean, the, the whole point of it, the incarnation is the incarnation. something big gets small enough for us to see it, but that doesn't mean it's small. <laughs> perfectly said, perfectly. Well, that's a great honor from you. And I appreciated oh. your little blurb on the back of the book too. Thank you. I was honored to do that. I, Thank but now you, you you know where I'm heading with this. Where you were involved with a group of people who called reclaiming Jesus. Oh yes, yeah. Tell us about that, and why did you get involved in that? Well, uh, of course, Jim Wallace, who was convening the group, we've been good buddies since we were both in our young thirties. We were both a part of the what we call the community of communities. Uh He had sojourners. I had New Jerusalem in Cincinnati. So we got to know one another. We had meetings several times a year. And uh, I was sort of at that time one of the token Catholics in what was mostly an Episcopal or Protestant grouping. Uh, So our trust relationship goes back that far. Uh And I told him, I said, you know, Jim, I, I hardly travel at all anymore. But can I come at least to the first meeting? I mean, it just seemed to me, as it did to so many of us, that if what's happening in America now, if we don't draw a line in the sand now, what is it going to take? (laughs) How many teachings of Jesus, how many Mm -hmm. attitudes of Jesus have been flaunted? Yes. Uh, in our faces, uh, how many people have to be laughed at and insulted publicly? Uh, if 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 we don't see this, I I just don't know how you understand Jesus. Yes, uh, it's it's frightening. It's frightening, and the even sadder conclusion is the only people who would not see that. Oh, this sounds so judgmental. Don't hear it that way, but. It probably is, mm. is people who must be in that same box themselves. Mm. You know, you can't see what you can't see in yourself. Yeah. And um, the people can't see mm. this person is not a nice person <laughs> on any level, on any level, moral, aesthetic, human, cultural, <laughs> intelligence. <laughs> 
uh, God just, Jesus just must be crying that this yeah. could happen. And the 35% of America doesn't see any problem with it. So when he told me reclaiming Jesus, mm -hmm. I know that sounds probably too fundamentalist to some proper Roman Catholics, but uh, we've been proper too long. Don't worry, it's not just Roman Catholics, trust me. Yeah, that's all of us, yeah. Um, we've just, I mean, Jesus is the founder of the firm. He started this whole thing. If, <laughs> if we can't be faithful to him, let's just give up on it. Yes. Instead of exactly. pretending that we're following him and then we're materialistic, militaristic, mm. uh, go down the whole list it's it's sad it's very sad i have to fight the voices of cynicism every day because i know if i fall into it i'm no good i'm no yeah. good for myself my friends or any teaching or preaching i still do How are you being challenged to turn and follow and reclaim Jesus right now? What hurdles are you facing as you seek to turn from the non-essential to the essential in living the way of love? Stay with us for the second half of Bishop Curry's conversation with Father Richard Rohr, following this message from our sponsor. I remember years ago reading a little book, and I don't remember the I, I don't remember the content of the book, but it was by J.B. Phillips, who just is years ago in the well, in the seventies. And the title is what stuck with me. The title of it was "Your God is Too Small." Oh yes, of course. And, what a true title. Your book is a message that somehow we've made the Christian faith too small, made it too small for the Christ, the, 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 the cosmic Christ. I love that. The, for the universal Christ, the second person of the Trinity. That's, this is pretty orthodox stuff. Um, you can't get bigger. The very love of God itself. I got a Christmas card years ago from um, um, someone, and it had a beautiful picture of, um, it was kind of a, I mean, I can't even describe it. It was a white card, kind of pearl white. And it had the image, just the shape of, you could tell it was Mary. And you could tell in her arm, she was holding Jesus. It was just the outlines of it. Um, and, and it said, Christmas is the celebration of the incarnation of love. Mm. <laughs> that's it. And that's and, what you're talking about. Yeah. We made Jesus, you know this from a chapter of the book, we mm -hmm. made Jesus into a, a problem solver. Yes. Not a primal revelation of the nature of love. Yes. Those are different agendas. Uh, we made it all about the substitutionary atonement theory, yes. which we Franciscans never accepted. And most mm -hmm. people are not aware of that, the Protestants yes. in particular. Mm -hmm. Don't know that that there was we were a minor position in the the Catholic theology, mm -hmm. and, um, so yeah, it was all about love for us. That love was his purpose, 
as Julian of Norwich yes. puts it. It's amazing we went down so many dead ends yes. to get back to love. It sets you free. I mean, from I was reading um, Eliza Griswold's wonderful piece in The New Yorker about it, but that this way of of seeing Jesus um, as as an incarnation and embodiment um, of the very heart of God um, as a way of opening up Christianity, not closing it down. But it's radically orthodox. You know, and people think it's soft theology. Love yeah. is soft theology. I mean, <laughs> that yeah. means they've never really loved. Yeah. Or they wouldn't say such a stupid thing, you know? Yes, yes. And poor Pope Francis is being accused oh. of this by his enemies, you know? Yes. This is soft theology. <laughs> yeah. As they say, it ain't soft till you try it. Yeah. Well, I don't need to tell you, Bishop, but the fact that one whole branch of the American Christian Church could divide mm -hmm. over the issue of slavery mm -hmm. a little over a century ago. Yes. That tells you how far we had wandered from the truth, that you could put slavery and Jesus in the yeah. same bucket. It's just beyond comprehension. Yes. Uh, just, yeah, beyond comprehension. And, and the irony is that for contemporary, for many contemporary Christians, the Sermon on the Mount is alien. It it's is. At all. <laughs> it's not a capitalistic worldview of earning and meriting and achieving and accomplishing yes. and performing. We like all of those words of addition, you know? Mm -hmm. Climbing, mm -hmm. and uh, we made the gospel largely into a, a spiritual capitalism, uh, mm -hmm. and uh, that can't get you there. That won't get you there because it's not true. <laughs> what is a spiritual? What is a spiritual capitalism? What is that? It's well. I'm going to give a psychological definition first of all. It's the ego's need to think of itself as superior, as saved, as separate, as apart, as above, use any of those. That's yeah. the whole concern of the human ego. Mm. I'm better than you. So uh, we found a, a way to use religion itself to make yeah. ourselves not humble as if we could know God, as if we could understand God, but to make ourselves smart. We've got God in our pocket. So uh -huh. a spiritual capitalist is one who, who sees the gospel as a performance principle. Uh -huh. You know, yeah. how, can we, um, how can we look better? How can we feel better about ourselves? Hmm. And it usually chooses very base criteria, you know, like attending a proper service every Sunday morning at which brown people are supposed to stay in the back pews, which mm -hmm. are our problem out here. The world doesn't have time for this anymore, you know? Yeah. It was all about a meritocracy, we call it now. I have merited my place in the front pew. 
And that just leads you into massive delusion uh, about what life is, what love is, what reality is. I had the lucky experience for 45 years. I got to preach all over the world where I was invited to give retreats and, and so forth. And most of the world has color on its skin. Oh, yeah. <laughs> overwhelming, overwhelming, <laughs> overwhelming. Yes, Father, I think you're right. <laughs> and this little white group from this little continent of Europe uh-huh. makes itself the privileged group and mm. defines normalcy uh, by its own skin color. It's, it's laughable. It's really laughable. Mm-hmm. And that we talked other people into going along with it. I remember going in, now this was more when I taught in Africa, maybe in the early 90s, uh-huh. but going into lovely black churches where mm-hmm. the people dance during the mass and you've seen them. Oh, yeah. But all the paintings, in more often than not, had yeah. Jesus painted as white. Yeah. Uh, how did we lay that on you? How did we get you to drink the Kool-Aid? He was a Middle Eastern Jew who yeah. would have had a very mid-tone brown skin. When I had my daily meditations uh-huh. on racism uh-huh. and capitalism, that we got more pushback in our um, customer service office here than any other issue. And I said, how can people been listening to me, some of them for months or years, and still be racist and still be bona fide? You know, I'm not saying capitalism per se is wrong, but that it's above criticism. It's above criticism. That's what I call the demonic. Anything above criticism will soon be demonic. Americans need to be told that. Um, our flag or whatever it might be. And I'd say that in any other country yeah. too. When that reclaiming Jesus, you know, part of part of what it said was that when anything um, attains the trappings of deity that is not God, it has become an idol. And There you go. There you, you know? go. Which we were told was the only real sin in mm-hmm. the Hebrew Bible was idolatry. Idolatry. Making yes. something God that was not God. How do we root it out then? How do we? How? How do we root it out, Father? How? I know you can't do it by willpower or just, mm. I mean, I like you have tried from the pulpit. Yeah. But if you in any way give people a, a sense of shame, they just tighten into their position. Yeah. Because they don't like to be shamed. That's the ego again. So I've given up on thinking shaming people would get them there. Yeah. Uh, Something has to pull out the rug from beneath their false certitudes. Hmm. Something has to show them the illusion and uh, the damage that their worldview is causing. And that has to be a womp on the side of the head, Uh a tragedy in the family, or they have to meet 
one holy gay person, one loving mm-hmm. black person, one mm-hmm. loving Arab person who's much more loving than I am. Yeah. yeah. So uh, we have a motto here at the CAC in Albuquerque. You cannot think your way into a new way of living. You must live your way into a new way of thinking. There has to be a lifestyle setting which rearranges your psyche. You know, people who are doing it very different than you, and I hate to admit it, but they're more kind than I am. (laughs) They're Mm. more generous than I am. Mm. Just talking about it doesn't convince people. They batten down the hatches and reaffirm their position. Uh, Here I've been a preacher for 50 years, but uh, I'm less convinced than ever that preaching alone can do it. Just words, words. It has to be lifestyle, has to be models, people who model a different life. It's follow me. There you go. Follow me, not worship me. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. And we've spent all our time worshiping Jesus, but very little time following him. Yes. What he actually did in terms of lifestyle. (laughs) It's it's like your spiritual. Everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. (laughs) Ah, there you go. (laughs) Oh, I love your chuckle. Thank you. (laughs) You you know, I wonder if your experience of, of us, that the attraction to you, and I'm not trying to puff you up and I don't mean to embarrass you, is that there's something about you and about what you teach um, and how you live that it like, it points toward heaven. It points toward God. And there are very few of us that don't want to be close to God in some way, even if it's oblique. But I don't want to have to do anything. I don't want to have to give anything else up to being the center of the universe. I just want to get close to God. I hope you're right. And anybody who gets close to me, uh, you could ask the staff if you ever come out here, all all 50 of them. They know how ordinary I am. But that even I could still point to God. Nothing makes me happier. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, your podcast is titled Another Name for Everything. I'm dying to know what that means. I believe when the first chapter of John's gospel said, and the word became flesh, that John deliberately chose a generic term. We immediately put the word Jesus in there. He doesn't use the word Jesus for 14 more verses in the Uh whole first chapter. He says, not the word became Jesus, but the word took on flesh. Now, you probably know enough church history to know that it was understood this way in the Uh Eastern church, which became orthodoxy, Mm -hmm. and by the Eastern fathers of the church. We in the West pretty much localized incarnation Mm -hmm. in the body of Jesus and worshiped it there. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I truly believe that that was the first title I was going to give the book. Mm 
-huh. another name for every thing, every and thing separated. Uh -huh. That enfleshment itself, embodiment itself. I'm looking out my window at the New Mexico sun. Uh, there's some butterflies on my May roses. Now that makes it easy. Those are pretty things. Let me look out the other window. There's a mud puddle over on this side. Uh -huh. <laughs> once you have the eyes to see God in every physical thing, mm. that every physical thing is a manifestation, is yeah. a word about God. So this means, unless you someone thinks I'm a heretic, I uh -huh. ask them to open to the prologue to John's gospel. Yes. First chapter of Colossians to the yep. first chapter of Ephesians yep. to the first paragraph of Hebrews. And it always said the Christ was with us from the beginning, from the beginning. Right. Yes. Uh, the moment that God said, let there be, let there be uh, materiality. When God took on physicality, we call it the Big Bang now, that was the real moment of the incarnation. Yes. If we don't preach a, a Christ who is as big as the universe, we now know from the Hubble telescope, the next generation is not going to take us seriously. We can't have a Johnny-come-lately God who just appears to take away the sin of Adam and Eve, or mm. something that we did wrong 3,000 years ago. Uh, 3,000 years is a blip, a blip in the uh, you know, ledger of time. Yeah. So either the whole universe is sacred, or we, what well, we found ourselves in our lifetime, Michael, is a hard time convincing people that anything is sacred. Yeah. You know, yeah. either all races and religions and nations are sacred in the body of Christ. They don't need to call themselves that. That's mm. our word, Christ. Mm. Uh, and it's a lovely word. It means the anointed one. Yes. But reality has been anointed since the beginning. Read Ephesians especially. Yeah. I think he repeats it three times. You were chosen in Christ from the beginning not for any worthiness on your part. Mm. So we look at all these other species and animals. I'm looking out at those cottonwood trees, and maybe earlier we would have said they're just trees. But huh. if you look at them contemplatively, they're obviously carrying a message about mm. the shape of reality, the nature of reality, the goodness, the fruitfulness of reality the willingness to die as they all will do eventually as the animals, the dear animals. I'm an animal lover uh -huh. and uh, I've gone through four dogs now. Oh, uh -huh. he, he heard me say his name. Uh, did, he, did he just, <laughs> it, it just you want me? No, not right now. He's my um, fourth dog. That That's my retirement. When I retire, that's all I'm going to do is just go Go to the dog pound or the humane shelter, whatever they call it now, and I'm just going to get me a mutt. Please do. I'm when I'm getting cynical about the world or human nature, I just observe an animal. 
yes. doing what it's doing yep. with complete contentment. And a duck doesn't try to be a fish, and a fish doesn't try to be uh, a fox. They all just do their own thing. Yeah. And like my last dog, when we had to put her to death, she mm -hmm. literally put her two paws in front of her. Oh, I mentioned that in the book. Yeah. Just like there was great intentionality to it and mm -hmm. slowly lowered her head till her mm -hmm. forehead, or not her forehead, but her uh, mouth hit the floor and yeah. she was dead. Oh, mm. it was, I hope I can surrender to Sister Death that well. I was just about to ask you, what would your blessing be for us? Well, just gave it. You know, I do love the Ephesians blessing again. Mm. Uh, may you know the height, may you know the length, may you know the depth, may you know the breadth. Mm. The love that surpasses understanding. Infinity cannot be understood mm. with the human mind, it's an impossible concept. And I think that's what Paul or whoever wrote Ephesians uh -huh. is trying to be the, to the length, the depth, the breadth. He's trying to describe infinity. Mm. And we've circumscribed God inside of a too small a box, I think. Mm. So I hope that, that blessing from Ephesians gives you a little touch of an infinite love. And don't try to put it in any smaller container. Mm. Amen. Amen. Amen, Father. You have blessed us. Oh, you are just, oh, well, you blessed me, and I know you blessed a whole lot of folk who are going to hear this podcast. Takes and one I'm, to see one. Oh. People who appreciate it is because they're already there. That's right. Thank you. thank you, Father. Thank you for spending this time and taking this time. Peace be with you. Well, that's a wrap on this episode of The Way of Love with Bishop Michael Curry. If you'd like to learn more about Father Richard Rohr and his ministry, visit the Center for Action and Contemplation at cac.org. That is cac.org. If you'd like to know more about how you can begin the work of learning and centering your life on the words of Jesus, check out our show notes for an episode of Traveling the Way of Love with Bishop Curry a link to the Another Name for Everything podcast and more. As always, you can learn more about Bishop Curry and the way of love, including how to create your own personal rule of life at episcopalchurch.org. Thanks this week to Father Richard Rohr, Bishop Curry, Jerusalem Greer, Chris Sikama, Jeremy Tackett, and Scott Van Pletzen-Renz. I'm Sandy Millian, and I'll see you next time on The Way of Love. The way of Jesus is the way of love, and the way of love can change the world. You're invited to join thousands of Episcopalians, neighbors, and friends this summer at the Love Always Revival at the KFC Yum Center in Louisville, Kentucky. On Saturday, June 22nd, get immersed in inspiring worship and community, deepen your love for God, kick off the 81st General Convention, and extend a warm welcome to folks discovering the Episcopal Church. The revival is free to attend, so bring your friends. 
If you're from a neighboring diocese, check in with your diocesan revival champion to find out about group travel options. You can find more information along with registration at iam.ec lovealways.